Well, good evening, everyone. Welcome to our Sunday night gathering. Uh, thank all those who joined us this morning here in the sanctuary, but now I'm, I'm here all by myself. But it's nice to have you joining us tonight. You don't have to wear a mask. Uh, you don't have to social distance. You don't have to register. You can have a cup of coffee. Get your Bible. We're working on a series, Repentance. Wanting to is good. Knowing how is even better. This is part five, and the title tonight is Ongoing Repentance and the Future Freedom from the Bondage and Power of Sin. What you'll notice is we're going to start tonight looking at the account we've been looking at from Luke. We're going to look at in in Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter 3, the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, quote, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. So large crowds of people. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he, John, verse 7, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, so willing to be baptized, Religion without repentance. We talked about this last Sunday night. He said to them, that is to the religious leaders, to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not enough just to have the baptism. They wanted that in front of everybody. The Pharisees wanted the people to see them baptized. Bear fruit, verse 8, in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So, not willing to repent, justifying their, their ethnic descent from Abraham. Do not begin, verse 9, to presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And even now, we looked at this last Sunday night, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, speaking of Jesus. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn, that he is still Jesus. We don't think of this very often. He will burn with unquenchable fire. I think you can see, this is a parallel passage to what we've been studying in Luke. And the main difference, I mentioned last Sunday night, the main difference is, Uh, Luke just says the crowds came, and John says, you brood of vipers. 
Whereas Matthew makes it very clear the crowds are coming. They're coming for quite a while from all over. It's when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it's when the religious leaders come, everything stops. John looks at the religious leaders and says, you, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so, as we saw last Sunday night, he picks this group of people who have the hardest time with deep repentance. They're still relying on the fact that we have Abraham as our father. We, we don't need what the rest of these people need, that kind of repentance. And yet John, John's there to prepare the way of the Lord. And if you're going to be ready for the Lord, everyone has to repent. That's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they couldn't see. I have four thoughts that I'd like to draw out of this passage from Matthew. We'll do two. We'll do two tonight, and we'll do two uh, next Sunday night. Here's where I want to start out. I, I want to take a, just a quick overview of what the Scriptures say about repentance as it relates to sin. Repentance always has to do with sin. Repentance isn't just a desire to be a nicer person, some kind of moral reform, some kind of self-improvement, self-betterment. All sorts of people who don't believe anything try to be nicer people. Repentance has to do with a recognition of sin, naming it sin, categorizing it as sin, facing sin, agreeing with God's assessment of sin. That's incredibly hard for the culture you and I live in. Confessing sin and then finally being delivered. Being delivered both from sin's guilt and sin's bondage. I think Matthew means all of those things that I just said about sin. Matthew means all of those things when he records these words in Matthew 3, verse 6. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, underline, confessing their sins. All of this relates to the doctrine of the incarnation, when the Word became flesh. I think it's important to remember why Jesus came. He, Jesus didn't come, so he says himself, he didn't just come to prove that we were sinners and condemn us for being sinners. Just to make us feel bad, just to make us feel guilty. And, and something else. And this might surprise people. Jesus didn't just come to provide forgiveness for our sins. He did that marvelously on the cross. But the gospel account of Jesus' birth records something much better than just the fact that there would be forgiveness. Look at Matthew 1, 21. These words spoken before Jesus was even born. Matthew 1, 21. She will bear a son. The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So from their sins means, that's speaking of the ongoing effect of the death and resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't just a matter of being pronounced righteous when we were saved. That's true, and it's precious. But it's not just being pronounced righteous, pronounced forgiven. Th through the work of Jesus Christ, Christians could experience 
ongoing deliverance from their sins. That's really important because because this deliverance from sin is, is the world's sign of the reality of the Christian faith. My neighbors can't see my forgiveness, my inward forgiveness. That's all hidden. It's internal. But the world can see deliverance from sin. We need to remember that. We'll never reach the world with just half a gospel. We, we need to see in ongoing, increasing measure, deliverance from the sins that bind their hearts in misery and self-deception. But here's the thing, and it relates to this series on repentance in our text tonight. This ongoing deliverance from sin isn't something automatic. Deliverance from sin ongoingly is directly tied to repenting of sin ongoingly. With all that in mind, here's something the church rarely does anymore. We're going to take a little bit of time tonight and next Sunday night. Let's look at what the scriptures specifically say about sin, because I think what happens is we all just have the idea is, well, sin is, is like it's bad. And, and that's okay, but that's nowhere near enough to know about sin if repentance is going to be all that it's designed to be and accomplish all it's designed to accomplish in our lives. Here's a couple thoughts about sin that we're going to start with tonight. So to sin, point number one, is to miss the mark or the target of God's will. I get that from uh, Romans 3.23, probably some of the best-known words in the Bible, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, That word in that verse, the word for sin, literally means to, to miss the mark, like an archer would draw back the bow and just can't hit the bullseye, no matter how many times he tries to do it. That falling short, Romans 3.23, it speaks of our, our fundamental inability in ourselves to accomplish what God expects from us. That's what falling short means. For all have sinned and fall short. The glory of God, the standards of God. Fall short means I can't reach it. I can't get there. I can't measure up. I mean, Paul hits the nail on the head in that short little verse when he just points to that fundamental inability in ourselves to please God. In fact, this is the central feature of the person outside of Christ. He's just, he's just not capable of pleasing God. The one outside of Christ, he's speaking a measure of truth when in his own strength he says, I I just can't help my addictions to abusive habits and thought patterns. I just can't live with that person one more day. I I just can't face my situation for one moment longer. I just can't say no to that kind of temptation. It's a common human problem of all outside of Christ Jesus. I just can't, I can't do it. It's just not in me. 
I can never measure up to what I know I'm created to be. I can only sustain brief moments of accomplishment, of the things that are important. Of course, we're all different. I'm not saying we're all the same. We all have different areas of stronger willpower and weaker. So we won't all fall in exactly the same area, but we will all come short of the glory of God. That much is for sure. We will all fall short in our own strength of what God expects and calls us to be. But I, but I need now, we're going to turn a corner here. I need to make an important distinction. I'm speaking, I'm speaking in all of those points I just made of people outside of Christ. For the most part, I'm thinking of Cedarview people, uh, we're, we're not outside of Christ. We're indwelt by Christ, by the Holy Spirit. And, and all of those earlier statements, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, those apply to people outside of Christ. They do not any longer apply with the same kind of consistent application to you and to me. And, and that's not just wishful thinking. I get that in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read six verses from Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And you, Paul writes to this church, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath. That's God's wrath. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And, and, and those haunting words, like the rest of mankind. I might not have committed the very same sins. I've never been in prison, or, but, but like I am as lost. I was as lost as the rest of mankind as much a child of wrath. Nice people have a hard time admitting that. And that's why Paul puts those words where he says, like the rest of mankind. You were like the rest of mankind. Don't kid yourself. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were, we were dead, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I mean, there's so much in that glorious text. My point here is it's simply inaccurate. It is unscriptural from what we just read. And it's spiritually defeating for Christians to just to just throw up their hands and say, you know, I just can't put up with that situation. No, I just can't live with that person. No, I just can't forgive that person. And, and Paul, would say, Paul would say, Don, you have been raised with Christ Jesus. Stop living like a dead person. That's not you anymore. Don't allow yourself to continue in that stance of unbelief and unrepentance. In Christ, you can now do things in growing measure, 
not in your own strength, but through Christ who lives in you. So, so this inward life of Christ, it's real life. It comes with an actual energy. Perhaps this realization comes gradually, sometimes even slowly at first, but it can happen as you yield repentantly, honestly, consistently to the ongoing promptings of the Holy Spirit. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. But repentance always has to do with sin. Sin, first and foremost, falling short of the glory of God. That fundamental inability outside of Christ, the inability to be what God wants us to be. We will never get there pulling up our own bootstraps. There's no political system, no educational system. We look to these things to solve all our problems, and they can solve some, but they can't deal with this inability to please God. Okay, point number two. So first, sin is inability, falls short of the glory of God. Secondly, to sin is to act in rebellion against the will of God. There's a difference here. Inability, even with desire, but now the desire isn't truly there. Sin is rebellion against the law of God. I get that in 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Why does John make that distinction? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness, John says. It is so common, I notice it more and more, even in our worship songs many times, to talk about being delivered from our fears, our weaknesses, our sorrows, um, like, these are the fundamental problem, and they're not. They're symptoms of the fundamental problem. John says, sin is, it's lawlessness. There's, there's a rebellion that has to be dealt with. We're not just sick people who need healing. We're rebels who must lay down our arms. So this, this idea of lawlessness... It presents another aspect of sinful actions and attitudes. He says it's, it's lawlessness. That means there's, there's more than just inability. That's that's fundamental problem. But there's also rebellion. No one will deal effectively and seriously with sin until he or she comes to see the guilt that's attached to that kind of rebellion. We are so conditioned. We are so conditioned outside the church and increasingly inside the church to think sin, think of it exclusively in terms of, of lack or some kind of inner weakness or some kind of improper self-image. And, and the word of the Spirit of God to all of those elements, it, it might be present in varying degrees, but at its root, at its essence, sin is rebellion against God's law. So, Calling sin rebellion, here's what it does. Calling sin rebellion brings God into the picture. I'm rebelling against him. Weakness doesn't carry that image. But rebellion makes sin official. It, it makes me accountable. It, it, it pictures a standard that I'm rebelling against, a dislike in my heart for something outside of myself. And because 
this rebellion is so common, we all find ways increasingly to relabel it with something other than rebellion. I mean, simple points of rebellion get tolerated and given place in the lives of multiple Christians. Sometimes they'll look at other people who are doing the same thing. We, we, we find ways to take the edge off. John says sin is lawlessness. You can snowball the Holy Spirit, but it, it just won't work. He's the spirit of truth. You can't, you can't whitewash over rebellion. And, and you'll never, the point is, you'll never repent with a truly broken heart just for something that you wish you could do better but can't. The, the, the heartbeat of repentance comes from sensing it as a rebellion against God, the mistreatment of a loved one, one to whom we should be devoted. In my heart, I know full well when the Lord says, Don, you're not to do that anymore. Or, Don, this now has got to change. Or, Don, you, you should be submitting to me in this area of your life, and you're not. And I'm calling you to fresh obedience. And it's what I do, remember? It's what I do at that point. Sin is my fundamental inability. Don't make it less than that. There's something... There's something in the heart that needs Christ's power and grace. I can't self-improve myself. Not before God. And two, sin. Here's the two things we looked at. Sin is, is rebellion. It's not just lack. It's not just shortcoming. There's, there's rebellion that needs to be laid down. So remember what we said. Repentance. Metanoia to perceive with the mind, noeo, meta, after. What, what do you do after you hear the Holy Spirit speak? There's, there's just no justifiable ground for resisting or arguing with the Spirit of God. He's, he's here for my good, always, always. Repentance is for my ultimate good. His, his will for my life is what I would always choose if I had all the facts. That is, the life-giving response of a repentant heart. We'll look at two more features about repentance and sin next Sunday night, but there's enough here, that fundamental inability outside of Christ and a rebellious heart. Don't ever make it less than those two things. You have to start with sin when you think about repentance. Let's pray. Your word is true and your word is good. You are out to bring forgiveness and you're out to bring deliverance from the, the bondage and the power of sin. Thank you for the way that fundamental inability is erased in increasing measure through the presence of Christ by his spirit in our hearts. We're children of God. Your seed, John says, the energy of your grace in our lives stomping down that fundamental inability to please God. And secondly, O oh Lord, make us all ever mindful at the very first stages of any 
any pinpoint of rebellion against your Holy Spirit when you speak through your word, through your church, through our devotional times, when you speak through conscience. Let, there, let the rebellion be, be squished in our hearts. Praise your name for your renewing grace and help us to walk ongoingly in the delivering power of repeated, consistent repentance before the Lord. Bless the truth of your word to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, church. God bless you. Join us for our prayer time.